0: This is the Off-Duty, On-Duty podcast, episode number 38. I'm your host, Brian Eastridge. Welcome to the podcast. Part of the ConcealedCarry.com podcast network. The Off-Duty, On-Duty podcast, we take topics that are relevant to today's gun owners and tackle them from the perspective of everyday concealed carriers and law enforcement officers to give you both angles of discussion. Today, I'm going to be joined again by one Mr. Uh, Rob Garrett. And we're going to talk about internal affairs, right? I, you know, Rob used to run an internal affairs unit. So uh, give kind of the concealed carrier arm populace the uh, inside info on what an internal affairs group does, right? Let's check out uh, a word from our sponsors. First and foremost, our new title sponsor, our title sponsor, I guess they're not new now. It's been about four or five episodes, uh, is XS sites, uh, If you've been paying attention to my social media, you'll see that I have, uh, spent quite a bit of time putting XS sites on my pistols and not because they're hard to install, but because they sent me a whole bunch of product and I've installed a bunch of it. So, I uh, got it on a Glock 19. Got the set of the F 8s on a Elite LTT Beretta, and I'm really digging those sights. So that's a plus. I'm kind of uh, in the past have been fairly agnostic about sights, but as I age and get a little older, the uh, <laughs> the more I need something bright and orange at the front of my gun. So, also brought to you by CCW Safe uh, the. Most comprehensive coverage by the most experienced team, legal service membership for concealed carriers and leos. Go to the show notes, ccwsafe.com. At checkout, enter off duty 10. There was some confusion about that a few episodes ago, and I apologize. Uh, at checkout, use the code off duty10, and we will get you 10% off of your first membership. Well, actually, your membership in general uh leos they got good plans for you guys too uh, also brought to you by edc belt company the foundation belt www.edcbeltco.com link is in the show notes a reminder guardian conference is coming up and along with that if you go to the show notes the uh, concealed carry podcast giveaway they are doing a weekly giveaway from companies like mountain man medical ready up gear and the link for that is in the show notes. You have to sign up weekly. So, and all you got to do is give them your email address and your name. And they draw on the concealed carry podcast. They draw a name for a good piece of kit. All right, let's bring in Rob Garrett. Welcome back for yet another episode. Uh, multi-time co-host slash guest uh, is Rob Garrett, my dear friend from uh, Georgia and you pitched an idea a couple of weeks ago on uh internal affairs which in the police world kind of makes people's uh, uh kind of test their constitution a little bit if you know what I'm saying when you get a letter to go see those folks uh of which I have uh, multiple times uh, fortunately not due to my own actions other than once but we'll talk about that some other time. So tell me uh, you were the head of or one of the investigators in an internal affairs
1: unit. Yeah. First, thank you for having having me back on. It's my pleasure. And, uh, I, uh, you know, having worked internal affairs in a large agency for about 16 years, you figure out that it's one of the most misunderstood functions of law enforcement from the public perspective, as well as the officers, the officers perceive you as a headhunter uh, or the Gestapo, and that we're out to get them. The public views the unit as some kind of internal secret unit that's trying to cover up and protect the agency, and and not give them all the facts. And really, both uh, both views are 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 totally and completely wrong. So I thought that your both the the your general civilian carry and and your your uh, Citizens would enjoy to hear this, as well as maybe it could uh, inform some of your LE guys that, at least from my perspective and the model that we used, which was based on a lot of best practices and other things, that it might make them uh, not quite as apprehensive. Okay, that's fair. So, you know, first off, the model we used was based on best practices as well as the the standards and and that we were required to follow because we were a nationally accredited agency from Calia, which is uh, the Commission on Accreditation for Law Enforcement Agencies. If if you're the public, you probably never heard of it. If you're in an agency that is accredited, everybody has heard of it because the process is real intensive, sometimes real intrusive, and uh, it makes you a better agency, but that doesn't come without a lot of pain
0: yes. So when I, when I hired onto my agency, 2002, we were midstream of the accreditation process. So just a little side note there that, uh, and yeah, you're absolutely right. It's a lengthy, lengthy process. And it's, it's, it's very, Oh, how to say it's very intense for a very long period of time. And I think what's the average about two years to get an agency accredited, I think
1: is about the, going rate if you sign your if you assign your initial contract uh it's minimum two years before you're anywhere close to having your first assessment or on site or inspection uh the issues come in and we won't get too far down this rabbit hole but the issues come in where the next three year cycle when they the first time you get a lot of grace and a lot of mercy the next time You've got to show compliance with all the standards, and if it's and, and if you miss one standard, they can kick you out of the program. There's not an eighty percent pass fail; it's a hundred percent pass fail, and that's that's very simplistic, but it is intensive. But Kalia has certain standards, and so first off, I guess the function of an internal affairs investi- internal affairs unit. Officer of professional standards, officer of professional responsibility—it's known by a lot of of names. Uh, most agencies have gotten away from internal affairs because of the the negative connotation to it, and because most units do significantly uh, do a lot of other significant work besides just investigations. But so the function is providing a totally independent review and by independent i mean you're not connected with the patrol division you're not connected with the investigative division you're an independent unit that is set aside that in best practice should report directly to the chief and you are a finder of fact period and you find out the best that you can what happened and then you determine if there's been any policy violations that's it in a nutshell you're looking for policy violations so what kind of cases do you normally work in an, in an ops uh IA unit well first off a discharge of firearm or an officer-involved shooting is at the top of the list and i'm sure we'll get into some significant uh discussion about that once we kind of lay the groundwork um Any incident that that results in serious bodily harm or or death to the officer, to the, quote, suspect, or to a third party. Um, Alleged civil rights violations, gross misconduct, ethical violations, uh, allegations of criminal misconduct, all those kind of things are far more complex to where, that patrol sergeant, that patrol lieutenant, that, number one, is, is too close to the situation in some cases. And if it's going to be a lengthy investigation, he has a full-time job to do. So those are normally pushed up to, to a, an IA function. And then the other duties you normally find in an IA unit in, in many places, uh, they're, since they are responsible for enforcing the policy in a sense – Uh, they're responsible with policy development and and writing policies. They don't do that in a vacuum, but they, they are responsible for that. Sometimes they do applicant background investigations. Uh, They quite frequently will coordinate with the city attorney or attorneys representing your municipality in high profile legal issues to help them prepare and understand the law enforcement side of the house Uh, And a lot of times, because they work directly for the chief, they're tasked with a lot of special projects. Uh, One of the ones, as an example, is the chief wanted wanted to look at implementing tasers several years ago. So they tasked the planning and research guy, which was me and my agency, along to set up a committee with representatives from patrol and investigations and from training. To determine what we needed and to write a policy and so uh just as an example so what we don't do is we don't put anybody in jail we don't do any criminal investigations uh we don't go out and normally surveil people in the field and and you know sneak around and and sit on wiretaps and any of that kind of thing that's all the criminal side of the house um we don't, in general terms, and my agency never did, do any kind of integrity testing. Uh, large agencies that have had serious integrity issues do have a, uh, a history of doing that. They will set up, for instance, a burglary scene in an apartment, and <clears throat> they'll have cameras in place, and they'll have valuables laid out and see if the officer that comes in to investigate it does it properly, turns in all the evidence Uh, and secures it, or does he take it home with him and steal it? Uh, A lot of large agencies, such as NYPD, that had serious corruption problems in the past, they've done that. I don't know whether they do it now, but as a rule, uh, most agencies are not going to do integrity testing anymore, as far as from the Southeast agencies that that I'm aware of. So that's kind of a, a quick overview. Yeah.
0: I'm not sure how many years my agency's had an internal affairs unit, as long as I can remember. Our agency is so large that a lot of times your your complaints are, are set back to a field investigator or, or a field supervisor to investigate and do the follow-ups with after they've reviewed it. It's a unique position on the police department. And I think a lot of people, I, I don't know what, tv show inspired it maybe it was uh, the dirty Harry series of you know san francisco in the 60s and 70s or whatever that uh you know public integrity and professional standards and internal affairs got these buzzwords attached to them and uh oh i don't know maybe serpico or something really uh started to to push that little known unit or that that entity within a police department kind of the the forefront and you know i've heard people over the years go well i'm just going to call internal affairs and i'm like well they're not going to come out and take your burglary report okay i I appreciate what those (laughs) what those guys and gals do but they're not going to come out here and do it like the police work they're going to do the work to make sure that i'm doing the police work so there there's been this cultural thing i guess and it seems like they uh they catch a lot of flack for a misunderstanding of what their actual role is, and and I've known police officers that have been around for years and years that really don't have an idea of how that that type of uh, organization within an organization functions. So I do appreciate your insight and knowledge on it, and uh, what uh, so let's let's look into maybe. That you now you've laid the groundwork. Maybe a, a practical example um, of of how that's implemented at an agency, or how that like how that unit comes to comes to be in an operational sense.
1: Well, <clears throat> from an organizational standpoint, as I said, the unit should report directly to the chief, and there are lots of reasons for that, but. And, and those selected for the unit really have to be respected, and the integrity of the unit and the integrity of the work, of the work product they put out and their findings really has to withstand a lot of scrutiny. That doesn't mean every single IE investigator has been, uh, you know, pure as, as a fresh-driven snow in their career. But it does mean they need to be free of any ethical issues where they perjured themselves in court or they mishandled evidence uh, or something like that that really brings into question uh, their, their integrity. Because the work product is going to be challenged in the public eye, in the media, and in the courts. And the process is... You know there are a lot of processes and, and procedures set up to protect employees and make sure that their they, their particular rights are protected. A good example of where this was not followed was in the the shooting in Atlanta, and it's just this past week. The officer got his job back from the uh, the personnel their personnel review board. And what happened is in in a uh, decision for political expediency, uh, there was a shooting. If you remember it, I believe it was McDonald's and the suspect was running away and the officers uh, used deadly force and not from my perspective. I don't have enough facts to judge whether it was an appropriate or, or, or legitimate shooting or not or use of force. But I believe it was the very next day or the next that the mayor and the police chief fired the officers before there was a thorough investigation, before they were afforded their due process rights under the Constitution to hear the evidence against them and to present their case and then have it arbitrated before a fair and impartial person. They they have fired them. Well, anybody that's been in law enforcement for any amount of time knew that when you fired somebody two days after an incident without due process, He's not only getting his job back, but his his bank account is going to probably line up with a sizable deposit in it. So you have to protect the officers because they have rights to. But then part of the issue is law enforcement officers and public safety people are given an awful lot of responsibility and authority because of their position. And with that comes the public trust aspect, and we're held to a higher standard. And so you have to balance those two things. Well, we've given the officer the authority to do this. We trust him to make this. And we got to protect his rights, but the public has a right to certain expectations as well. And where does that balance come in? And so where that balance came in, quite frankly, uh, was in 1967, way back then when uh, there was a case called Garrity versus New Jersey. And I won't go into the facts of the case, but Garrity is the buzzword that scares every police officer. Because it says, you got to talk to us. And if you don't talk to us, we can fire you in a nutshell. But there's more to it than that. So the Garrity case looked at, Balancing the interest of the public and, the, and the, the agency and their interest against the rights of the employee. And that balance comes in with this. Garrity basically said that if the employee or officer is the misconduct that is alleged. Could be criminal in nature. The first thing Garrity says is you cannot be compelled to answer questions. Because of your right to the Fifth Amendment under under Miranda, you have a right where you can't be compelled to answer questions. it could self-incriminate you in a, in a court of law, in, in a criminal case. So the Supreme Court said those rights apply to police officers. But then it said in an administrative situation where the worst thing that can happen is that you're terminated, you can be compelled to answer questions. And, and make statements and provide certain evidence but it can only be used administratively and whatever you give them is given under what is what is called limited use immunity so uh, that you don't have the you must answer the questions uh, it can't be used criminally but it can be used administratively to uh, to as evidence for Jud uh, uh, disciplinary actions up in include termination. And so Garrity is misunderstood. And even if an, an employee is called in and given Garrity and say, you're required to talk to us, if he chooses to refuse, he may be terminated. But that's the end of it. Then again, if he spills his guts about all the money he's taken off the, the guy slinging dope on the, corner of the, on, on the corner of the street and all the dope that he's taking for his personal use, none of that can be used criminally. That is the way it should be. We call them in. We tell the employee or the witness, whoever it is, what the nature of the investigation is, and then say, tell us what happened. And generally, we will let them run for as long as they want to uninterrupted to give us a complete narrative to begin with for lots of reasons. Number one, it's that free flow statement that really wants to get going, if there are any nuggets to be had that they don't want us to know, if if you just give them time for a free flow a free flow statement, then maybe you'll gleam a nugget there that uh, under Q and A when they really stop and question or stop and think about their answers, they may decide to to withhold. But it also makes them feel like that we're not out to get them. We're here. To tell us what happened. You know, I guys don't live in a bubble. They're going to lunch with their friends. They worked in patrol with, or where they worked in investigations with. They're sitting in, in service training classes with their fellow peers. Um, they are sitting on committee meetings, sometimes training committees. So, it's not like, at, at least in, in most agencies, in, in the super agencies, NYPD, LA, it's, it's a different model, and, and I get that. But they're not over here in some vacuum. And so they have personal relationships with other people they've worked with, because normally you have to be a reasonably experienced person to, be, to even be considered for an IA unit. So it's one of those things that we try to make it non-confrontational. We try to give the the person we're interviewing uh, the benefit of the doubt. We want to listen to everything they've got to say. And a, a little side note is if a police officer has done something that he thinks is wrong, he's probably going to admit it quicker than some criminal on the street because while he knows he shouldn't have done it, he became a police officer to do right. He has a conscience, and and I'm talking the majority, and he doesn't want to lose your respect, and so he he wants to at least tell you, yeah, I screwed up, but this is why, and and these are the circumstances because he wants the mutual respect of his peers. You mentioned Serpico, and again, New York and L.A. are are their own entities, and uh, but Serpico and movies like that. Absolutely said, you know, here we have an officer trying to do the right thing, and I is headhunting him out there trying to find something on him to either put him in jail or get him fired. And that's just, that's just really not the case. One thing I failed to mention is in the general model that uh, best practices, an internal affairs unit cannot even open a case until they've gotten a direct order from the chief. Only the chief or the CEO, the sheriff can can authorize a case to be opened. So uh, the chief may get, you mentioned line complaints knows the citizen calls about rudeness. Well, most of the time that first line supervisor, a Sergeant or Lieutenant is going to talk to the officer, talk to the citizen, review the body cam and make some kind of determination. If, if the officer was rude or not, if he was, he's going to take corrective action. If he wasn't, Uh, rude, then he's going to document that. And one of the things that we always do under the best practices, whether it's a simple rudeness complaint or a civil rights violation, is the citizen that was involved or made the complaint is always made aware of the disposition of the case. We close the loop with them, whether it's that sergeant that says, Ms. Smith, I've reviewed the, the body camera and his tone was inappropriate and I've taken corrective action or Ms. Smith, I reviewed the body camera and my officer was completely within policy. So at least we closed the loop with those people and say, we truly did investigate it. And these are our findings. And that's really important for, and they may not be happy with it all the time. That's really important for the integrity of the process. And, uh, so, you know, when I, I teach IA, you know, a master's level uh, career uh, course that, that is taught in Georgia, and I, I teach IA, and I start my class with, with three premises. Number words, number one, words mean things. Whether it's in policy or whether it's in statement, words mean things. They have connotation. They have context. Number two, you can't make it up because just when you think you've seen everything there is to see Somebody moves the bar. And number three, you can't fix stupid.
0: <laughs> okay. So
1: words mean things. You can't make it up and you can't fix stupid. And we can talk about some stupid stuff we looked at. We can talk about, uh, you know, a lot of things. We had some some cases that really, if you had written it down, it would be more like a meme on Facebook than it would in, in, in real life. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, I've I've seen several of those over the years. Mainly on the criminal side. It, I've never worked on the, you know, internal investigation side of things. So, uh but yeah, I've definitely and, and it still happens to this day after, you know, I'm closing in on almost 20 years and every time I think I've seen it all, uh, something new grabs me. So and and it's almost weekly. It's it's amazing for those people that uh, are looking for an exciting career law enforcement is an ever changing landscape that uh, in the last 20 years I've been involved in it I've never gotten bored with seeing <laughs> what you see so all right so moving uh, moving down the the internal affairs rabbit hole is there anything on uh, on that side of the house that correlates to like the armed citizen, or is this a unique thing to law enforcement?
1: Well, it's, I think it's unique to law enforcement because anytime an armed citizen is involved in a confrontation, it's going to be a criminal investigation. They're they're not held by policies. They're held by uh, the laws and the statutes of their, their community and their state and, and national laws where it does come into play with citizens it's very important is when the citizens are a witness to an incident that is being investigated uh, by law enforcement and i guess one of the things that first thing i will i want to say about when you talk to anyone especially internal affairs either tell the truth or don't answer the question and, and what i mean by that is this Unless you committed a serious felony or something really, really unethical, there's a good chance if you come into IA and say, look, I screwed up, and you can admit to what you've done, and you've been a good employee, there's a chance you can keep your career. You may take a serious hit uh, from disciplinary action, suspension without pay, you may be reassigned. Uh, your reputation among your peers and upon management may, may take a hit. But you may be able to salvage your career. But if you come in and lie, well, if you lie to IA about something, then the the natural extension of that is you'll lie in court about probable cause or case you made. And now all of a sudden, you become an officer that can be impeached over an integrity issue and if your testimony isn't going to be believed, then your career is over. So it's important to tell the truth. It's also important to note that, from, and you're talking about the, the citizens, they need to come in and tell the truth as well, but understand that their version of the truth, while it is truthful to them, may not be 100% accurate. As you know, even a criminal investigation, sometimes eyewitnesses are the absolute worst witness that you can have. And back in the day, we really we had to rely on eyewitness testimony. Where now we've got body cameras, we got dash cams, we got surveillance cameras in every business. Uh, we've got citizens that, when something breaks loose, first thing they do is pull out their iPhone and start videoing it. So we have a lot of other. Um, context out there to put it in and just to to jump on quick one rabbit hole the cry from ferguson hands up don't shoot was a totally fabricated circumstance that did not take place that became a narrative that to this day it it was on the media enough and it's been in uh it's the mantra of all the protests that the people actually believe that the suspect's hands were raised at the time he was shot, which is not the case
0: yeah i was I was in uh, a patrol function when that that incident occurred, and there were hundreds upon hundreds of people marching with the narrative of hands up, don't shoot. And after the justice department released the, uh, the findings of the investigation, it, it was pretty quick. How far, how, how fast that went away. And then now here in the last few, well, probably last year I've seen that narrative come back and it's like, that was a complete fabrication. I, I, I that's, responsibility of the media. If you ask me, which, you know, this podcast is a media outlet. So I don't, I don't completely despise the the media in general, but there again, it is, uh, I think it's pretty irresponsible when they promote a narrative that uh, is false or fabricated. So
1: what, well, one of the sad things about today is that an officer can get in a confrontation where they are absolutely an imminent threat of serious bodily harm or death or a third person is in that situation and they can use deadly force to protect themselves or a third party and then wind up getting absolutely crucified in their career room. Uh, this latest shooting where uh, it was a teenage girl that was stabbing I believe a juvenile, and the officers, you know, needed to use deadly force to stop the threat. Uh, is is a classic example, and to be one hundred percent right, what you do and still have your career and your your life in some cases put in jeopardy is um that's pretty depressing. And that certainly is causing officers, I think, to second guess themselves on the street, on a on a daily and nightly basis.
0: Yeah, and it's it's certainly accelerated the retirement timelines of a number of my peers. But and that's something that I don't think. Uh, I mean, maybe the military, in some degree, can can relate to that. You know, I've had military members that. Uh, our friends of mine that have had incidents that were on a scale similar that, you know, somebody didn't agree with what happened somewhere. And the, the race is on to find out, you know, how fast we can run somebody out of our, out of our organization. Uh, one of the things that I I've heard recently, and maybe you can shed some light on it was, you know, well, an internal affairs unit is they're, they're, employees of a police department. So how do we, and, and I've, I've heard this narrative now shift to people trying to, I guess, question the integrity of that entity because, well, they all work for the same place. They all, like we've talked about before, you know, there, there are peers, there are colleagues at some point there are supervisors there and they, they do rotations or assignments through that unit. And it's like, well, how fair and impartial can they be? And, uh, I can attest that my agency, I've had some dear friends that were in that unit and being on the other side of the table from them, I thought, oh, wow. Uh, there is no doubt that there's no question of integrity, uh, between in this conversation. I mean, we can be friends and buddies later, but what happened happened and let's, you know, air it out. So do you th- shed some light or speak to that a little bit? Cause I, I think there's a lot of call for like civilian review boards and things like that. And tell me, you know, kind of your take on that stuff.
1: I mentioned earlier that, you know, we internal affairs officers didn't come up in a vacuum. They don't work in a vacuum. And so they have been where, in many cases, where the people they're interviewing, but it takes a special person to sit across the table and ask the tough questions of your best friend. It takes an even more special question, a special person, to do the same with someone you actually despise. To be obje- and, and objectivity is a trait that has to be there. They must be objective, and everyone is treated the same way. The questions are asked the same way. And I've sat across people that I didn't get along with. I did not consider them an enemy, but they may have viewed me that way. And then I've sat across from people that I went to the academy with, that have been in my home to eat dinner, that we've been to the range with, and I've had to ask them the same tough questions. And the general mindset of an IE investigator is, let's get the facts out, let's get the truth out, and then... It falls on the side of, of whether it violates policy on its own merit. Uh, it's it's either you did or you didn't do it, and there's even a there's even a caveat in most agencies' policies, to where if you intentionally violated policy, but a review finds that your actions, under the totality of the circumstances, were appropriate, then. It's no harm, no foul. So, for instance, uh, warning shots may be actually totally prohibited in your agency. However, if there's an assault of female going on on the other side of a ten-foot chain-link fence with no gates that has barbed wire on top and you have no means whatsoever to get to her, to physically uh, intervene in the assault, and the fact that you can't necessarily, because of, of, of the, the, the fight or the assault, safely employ deadly force against a suspect, I may put two rounds in the ground as a challenge in an attempt to end the assault. Now, violated policy, but in our agency, that would have been viewed as if the rounds were discharged in a safe manner, uh, and uh, then that would be something under the totality of the circumstances. You know, everything considered that was reasonable, especially if it stopped the assault and the bad guy decided to run off. So there, there are caveats even there that if you can justify what you did, there, there's some, some give and take You know, we're not there to cover up. We're not there to um, crucify the officer. We're a finder of fact. And I keep coming back to that because that's as as simple as it is. Do officers always want to give us all the facts? No. Do citizens always want to give us accurate statements? No. Um, Probably one of the most interesting interviews I did took place we had an elderly gentleman that whose wife had had died in a hospital and he he could not reconcile himself to it and this was in 2008 and so sometime later he goes up to the hospital Parks in a parking deck, goes up to the floor where his wife died looking for a specific nurse to shoot because he he blamed that nurse for the death of his wife. He winds up shooting uh, and he winds up killing three people. He tries to leave the scene. Uh, We have officers there by that time, and we're able to stop him, take him into custody. So this is, is really a, a huge incident. Uh, and, and in 2008, we weren't at this situation we are now where we have shootings like this daily and they make mega news. CNN came down from Atlanta and two and a half hours after the event, uh, you know, we were on CNN saying, standing in the parking lot, working the case. But so the, as an I unit, we got everything we needed. We went back to the office to determine our plan of attack, how many people we had to interview and how we wanted to do it. And we got a call that the suspect had been released from the hospital and they would bring him to headquarters. Well, all of the criminal investigators were still on the scene. So the internal affairs unit was the first person to question that elderly gentleman that is shot and killed three people because of the loss of his wife. And that was probably one of the most compelling interviews I've ever done because we see these people and we see the results and we see them as, as, as evil possessed people. And what sat before me across from that table was a very broken man, not taking away from what he did, uh, and, and he was sentenced for it, but he was no monster. He just had no other way out. And, and he had grieved the death of his wife for so long. And that was what he felt like that was going to be his out, to seek retribution and kill the person responsible for her. And then he generally hoped he would be killed by law enforcement. So that one was, uh, that one's very unique. Yeah,
0: my uh, my father, after oh hundreds of of interviews with you know suspects arrested for murder, uh, he one time made the the statement to me that emotion is the most. How did he say it? He said emotion is the most dangerous drug known to man. Take that for what it's worth. And I got to say, after almost 20 years in police work, I completely agree.
1: Yeah. We generally look at the, at the root cause. And so, whenever we have a, a really atrocious case, for instance, a, a brutality case where multiple officers, you know, assault a suspect that's on the ground, you know, everybody says, man, that's crazy. But, you know, one of the first questions that, that come to mind is, What environment existed that they felt like they could get away with that? And how many times has it happened before? And so it's, you're right, emotion and, you know, one of the things that when it comes to people getting in trouble, and this is not just law enforcement, there's generally three emotions that are at the crux or the root of every single issue, anger, lust, or greed. And, and that attacks our, our basic humanity, and, and that's, that's generally uh, – you can, you can attribute an issue to one of those three things. Uh, one thing I would mention very quickly is that it's generally the model now that if there's a shooting, you will hear in Georgia that the chief of police has requested – the Georgia Bureau of Investigation to come in and investigate this case. Uh, Oklahoma, I'm I'm sure, has something similar.
0: Uh, We do, although our larger agencies do do the investigations. But I can't remember how many, what our count of agencies are in the state between sheriff's departments and, and major municipalities. But there's really, there's only about four major municipalities, four or five that uh, handle all of their own investigation in those things. And I mean, you're, you're talking, there are agencies in Oklahoma that have, you know, a, a chief, a chief, an assistant chief and a bunch of volunteers. So in those cases, they, they typically bring in a representative from the County Sheriff's office or the Oklahoma state Bureau of investigation to do their uh, criminal investigations on like officer involved shootings and things like that. So,
1: and, And that's what I was going to mention it when in Georgia, they call the GBI in the GBI is doing a criminal investigation where the officer is the suspect and they are investigating to see if he violated any criminal acts. So that is certainly, and as a general rule, then they present that case directly to the district attorney in the appropriate jurisdiction and the district attorney rules on, on whether to take it to a grand jury or whether, um, they're going to prosecute the officer. But that is a criminal case, and as such, the officer cannot be compelled to talk or give statements in any criminal investigation, whether it's their own agency looking at it or, or a state agency that looks at it, or for that matter, the FBI. In a civil rights case, the officers you know, have the same rights as any other citizen, and sometimes that's misunderstood as well. And uh, they have a right to, uh, to not say anything in, in a criminal case. And so that's where Garrity and the administrative is, is so important. Even though an administrative investigation can't result in uh, criminal charges, at least it, there's an accountability there that goes beyond a criminal case. And uh, probably the greatest compliment I got, is, is we were doing a shooting debriefing uh, several months after shooting where we got everybody involved in one room and we kind of presented it and everybody went around the room uh, explaining their perspective and what they did and, you know, what went right, and what went wrong and asking about training, asking about equipment, all those kind of things. And an employee that I would never have guessed would have made this statement said out of all the process that I worried about after I was involved in this shooting, he said, the one I I, I was the most apprehensive about or worried the most about was sitting down and talking with IA. And then he said, in fact, that was the easiest, that was the easiest part of the process all they want to do is, is tell me what happened and I asked you know I asked a lot of de- answered a lot of detailed questions that they want to know answers to. but he said that was actually the easiest part of the process. And when you have someone that you at least your perception is they're not a fan uh, of your unit. And when they say that in, in an open forum like that, that that tells you you're doing something right.
0: Yeah so. What, uh, what kind of final thoughts you got for us? We're running up on the hour here and I don't want to keep you from grading term papers too long. So
1: (laughs) probably I would just want the citizenry to know that in the large majority of agencies in our country, there are reviews and checks and balances that are objective that do Um, a thorough investigation to determine whether the misconduct took place. And it's not to an agency's benefit to hide misconduct because that puts the agency on the hook down the road. So it's to the agency's benefit to determine if misconduct took place and then to take appropriate action, whether it's termination, whether it's, you know, what other kind of actions take place. Because that agency does not want to want to incur any more liability down the road for negligent retention of troubled employees, where two years from now they look at a a a compilation of actions by this officer and they said this officer should have been terminated two years ago. You chose to keep him. We view that as negligent, and now here's a multi-million dollar settlement. Agencies look at uh, those type of things, and agencies look to they want and need the public trust. And public trust is not gained by covering up things and by putting false narratives out there. The narrative may not be what the public wants to hear. It may not be the narrative from the police department or the agency Uh, based on facts may not be what the public may not be the same narrative as what the public has heard in the media, but there is integrity. Officers are held to high standards. And while the public in general may not always understand, you know, the actions that are taken, they're taking with the public trust in mind, and needing that that public trust to do their job. Agencies can't do their job without the public, plain and simple. If they don't call us, if they don't report, and if they aren't willing to be witnesses, we can't do our job. And so that's probably what I would leave your, your, your viewers with is to, in the large majority of cases, uh, I think you can trust your agency and trust the decisions that are being made. And, again, there are exceptions, and I'll, I'll, I will I'll certainly uh, uh, admit that. But we're out here trying to do a very difficult job in trying times to the best of our ability, and the processes are in place to hold us accountable, and I would just ask that, you know, the, the folks listening would, would trust their agencies until they're really given a legitimate reason not to. And that legitimate reason is not a media narrative.
0: I think that's a great final thought. The narrative is rarely the media narrative in my experience. What you see on the TV is not what's going on behind the scenes most of the time. And when people ask me, well, what's your opinion of this high-profile case or that high-profile case, my default answer is I'll wait for the investigation to be completed before I make up my mind uh, because I've seen, like you said, you mentioned the 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 Ferguson incident. I've seen the media narrative be 180 degrees different from what actually happened after a uh, lengthy investigation was completed, so – leave it with that. Go ahead.
1: One of the issues that we see in movies and TV and choose your, your cop show (laughs) is they get into a shooting and they go right back to the office. They go right back out, get in another car chase, get in another shooting and the, the media presents it as that it's no big deal, particularly when in, in one episode of NCIS, they get into three shootouts and, and kill four guys and they're still working the case. And then at the end, they all go home at the end of the day and turn the lights out. When in fact, an officer gets involved in a shooting, number one is probably the most traumatic event they can that can occur in their life. You know, they are immediately pulled off the street. Uh, it could be months before they go back to work. The paperwork is, is tremendous. The number of interviews, all the investigative process, before it's determined that, that they go back to the street, they're full duty status. So the public never sees that. The public never sees the close examination every time a weapon is discharged. All they see is on TV is, well, he goes right back to work and nothing could be further from the truth. And so it's again, it's it's the media, it's the narrative, it's it's what we're accustomed to seeing. That the TV shows almost minim- uh, minimize the fact that they were involved in a shooting and and someone was injured or killed when, in fact, it's really a tremendous uh, it's a big deal in the way it's handled. Yeah,
0: completely agree. You ready to wrap it up? All right. Episode 38. Thanks to my guest, Rob Garrett. it will be a little outro music again. All right. If you haven't already, check out our sponsors, access site, CCW safe, EDC belt company, Reminder, get on, get in the show notes and sign up for the Concealed Carry Podcast giveaway. Giving away some cool gear. If, you're subs- if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We're on all of the major platforms. You got some feedback, get on the website. You can get under... Uh, the podcast, whichever one, whichever topic, and you can leave me with some notes. And I, resp- I try to respond to those weekly. So uh, I think we're about at the point we're going to get another mailbag episode. I'll be teaching at uh, the Guardian Conference in September. Also, if you're in the Oklahoma City area, you want to come see me, send me a message through the website. I'm putting on a class June 5th out in Tuttle, America a little suburb of oklahoma city i'm going to be doing a skill builder one it's a pretty low round count class 150 rounds come on by come shoot with me the off-duty on-duty podcast is a production of eastridge training and consulting llc eastridge training and consulting llc presents the following content for educational purposes only Always take proper precautions. Follow all firearm safety rules. Consult with a competent firearms instructor and have trained medical staff on hand when operating live firearms. Legal content, commentary, or explanations do not constitute legal advice. We are not attorneys and recommend always consulting with competent legal counsel when researching or seeking to understand laws and legal application. Eastridge Training and Consulting LLC, its participants, partners, and affiliates are not liable for any action taken based on the content of this shared podcast.